It's good to see God's people assembling together together to worship the Lord. Uh, we are, among all the people of the world, the, uh, the weak, the beggarly, the, the ones that you would not expect uh, to be reigning with Christ. And yet here we are, in this present evil world, seated in heavenly places in Christ. We'll be looking at chapter 5 of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine or the teaching that I want you to take home today is simply this. Our Lord Jesus Christ is on the throne and he is raised and he is he is ruling. The fact that Christ is ruling his kingdom exactly the way he wants to rule it should make our hearts rise up in praise and in song before him. Amen. I'd like to give you a brief review of where we've been and where we're going, and that is the Apocalypse of the Lord Jesus Christ is a book of visions given to John, and Christ came to John on the Isle of Patmos and showed him things, and he said, I want you to write to seven churches that are in Asia Minor, and he gave them the names of those churches, and each church received a, uh, a unique introduction of how Christ introduced himself to them. They received acclamations and some of them received rebukes. But they all received the love and care of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the vision continued with Christ being revealed about who he is, about uh, he was being dressed in white raiment. He was, he was the, the high priest. He had eyes that were flamed, flaming, his feet were in bronze, and he was showing that he was walking among his churches. And he's doing this now. He is among his churches now. Right. He has given us a letter. He has given us his word, and he wants us to know that he is with us. That was the first vision. The second vision We'll be looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6, and 7. That is one vision, and it will continue to chapter 8, verse 1. After chapter 8, verse 2, that is the next and third vision of the apocalypse. There are seven visions in all. And each of these visions have a way of looking at all that will be done from the time that our Lord, that our Lord came the first time, from the incarnation to the time that he comes again when he reveals himself from heaven to all the earth. The first time he came and only a small group of shepherds heard the acclamation from the angels. And yet when he lived his life, the mystery was then revealed after the Lord was crucified for our sins. And then the gospel was sent forth into all the world. At that time, I remember the Lord saying to his disciples at one time, he saw Satan fall from heaven to the earth. And this is when the gospel was made clear, when the mystery of all the shadows of the Old Testament were then pointed to the Son of God who came to die for our sins. And now the shadows are the real substance. Now we are able to preach clearly the mystery of God that was held in shadows from the time of Moses until now, until that time. And so in this vision, we see how Christ has called John up into heaven and he saw, and we, as we looked last week, how there was a throne in heaven and all things are surrounded around this throne and God sits on this throne. And that is the center of all that there is to see. However, 
from this throne, we continue to today in chapter 5, we will see that the one who is sitting on the throne has a scroll, a very, very important scroll. And if you can only understand that in these 14 verses in chapter 5, there are basically only two things being done. One, Christ comes and he takes the scroll from him who is sitting on the throne. That's one thing. The next thing is that all creatures around this throne fall down and worship God and Christ, the one who is sitting on the throne and the Lamb who is in the throne. Those are the two things that have happened. So let's go through these verses. We'll look at them verse by verse, see what we can glean from them, and you'll see that the practical applications are very obvious. As a matter of fact, the applications at the end will be nothing more than a summary, again, of what we've read, because the, the vision is very clear and very easy to understand. Now, I may not know what all the things mean, but I believe that it will be easy to understand exactly what we're looking at. Verse number one of chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now this being a vision, we know that this is part of the apocalypse where something has to be interpreted. This is a vision that's given to, to John by God himself. And he immediately says, I saw. We've seen already that when John sees something, he usually looks at it and he may, with his eyes, see something different. It will be this way even in this time. We will take a look at one who is sitting on the throne. Have you noticed that John does not say, God the Father is sitting on the throne? No. It reminds me of this literary technique where it says, He who shall not be named. You know, I'm not going to go in that direction, but it says, He who sits on the throne. It is very much like the Old Testament where the prophets and the writers and the scribes would not even want to speak the name of God out of sheer reverence. And so John looks at the throne and he doesn't even have uh, the courage to speak the name of God, but he refers to him as to the one who is seated on the throne, which is another way of saying there is the one that rules all things. He is on the throne ruling and there he is. And this one who is seated on the throne is and, and ruling has something in his right hand. Now, we know that God does not have body parts, don't we? He does not have hands, he does not have a head, he does not have feet. And yet he is described in the scriptures, the one who rides upon the clouds. We see that his eyes are everywhere in the earth, and that his hand is mighty, and that his feet are made of bronze and he goes where he wants. These are anthropomorphisms that help us to understand that he does things the way we would do things, but they are much grander and much greater and far beyond our comprehension. And so when we think of the right hand, we think of something that says, I'm his right hand man. It is the right hand of God that has the power, the authority, and the uprightness to it. Now I've read that in the Orient or in the East, the left hand you know, is kind of a symbol of, of some, something that's done uh, in the darkness or shall we say on the sly or something that cannot be trusted. <coughs> You say, well, that guy has a good right hand, but watch out for his left hand. Now, I'm not saying that God is in this, in this situation, but I am saying this. He holds up his right hand, the hand of his authority and the hand of his power. And Christ is the one who is seated on his right hand. He has authority and he has power. And it is straightforward and it is revealed in this vision. He has in his hand a scroll. 
Now this time, it was easy to understand that this is like a book. A codex is a book that's bound on the edge, but this is a scroll that has, shall we say, in this vision, probably a rolled out piece of paper, or shall we say parchment, and uh, in some places they would actually use animal skins, but normally a scroll is written on one side. It's textured and it's uh, processed in a way where writing is easily done on one side. And it's normal if you have a large uh, letter or something that's very uh, volu you know, voluminous, shall we say, uh, to write, then you would just have more scrolls. Remember how Christ said, Behold, it is in the volume written of me. One scroll would be considered a volume. But here we have a scroll that its very first characteristic is that it's written on the one side and also on the back side. This can imply many, very many things, and I've read a lot of different opinions by the commentators. But commentators, you know, they have opinions, they, just like everyone else. Everyone has a nose, everyone has an opinion, and uh, I thought the opinions were very good. But most of the time it works like this. Their opinions were saying, well, perhaps it meant that there were two scrolls, or perhaps it meant a variety of things. But I can tell you what at least it means. It means, at the very least, this. There was a lot in that scroll. There was a lot in that scroll. God is saying, I have a scroll in my hand, and it's very detailed, and it has lots of things in it. There is details within the, within the power of God, in all of His decrees, all that God plans to do. God's plan is detailed to the infinite degree. We cannot understand the details. Only God can know that. It is He is the Almighty, the All-Knowing. And everything that's done in that scroll is going to be taken by someone who is worthy to take it. It remains in the hand of the one on the throne until someone is worthy to come and take it. It is this way, and it is told us that it is this way by the seals that are upon it. It says that it is sealed with seven seals. Now, we had a lesson in the past concerning the seals that are used at this time. Many times, a, a king or a person of authority may want to write a bull, as the Roman church used to do, or write laws, and they would put upon that seal a large amount of wax, perhaps, and press an image into it. My wife and I went to England one time, and we saw the bulls that were created by the popes uh, back in the 14 and 1500s, and, and it, was a, it was a blob of wax just about this big around, and uh, the, the ribbons that were on it were real long. They were kind of very ornate. I don't know what the seals look like on this scroll, but I know that most of the time there's only one seal on a scroll or on a book or on a document. This happens to have seven seals. I believe that this number does have a significance in this apocalyptic book that has many types and many sh uh, shadows that are used to describe things, and seven seems to be the number that describes the completeness of God, the completeness of His Spirit. We had the seven lampstands before the throne of God, which are the seven churches, but the seven spirits went out to each one. And we see that, that, uh, that Christ is going to have as a lamb seven eyes and seven horns and so on. And so we have now seven seals. And we must understand that these seals cannot be broken except you have the authentication or the 
um, authority to do so. Now, these two words that I'm using, to be authenticated and to be authorized, they're, they're similar, but they don't mean the same thing. You know that I, that I make my living at, as, a, as a computer person. I'm an IT guy. Most of the time, I work with security. And when it comes to the security of IT systems, you can only allow a person into a data store if they are authorized to be uh, to look at the data. They have to be authorized. In other words, someone has to make the decision. Is he allowed to see it or is he not allowed to see it? If he has the authorization to see it, well, then you then go to the process of authenticating who that person is. Because somebody can come and just misrepresent themselves. There must be a way to authenticate who is authorized. Do you see what's going on here? There is a process here before the throne of God that says you must be authorized to take this scroll and there will be a process to authenticate who is able to do this. We have around the throne cherubims, mighty, mighty creatures armed with flaming swords. That is, the one at the Garden of Eden had a flaming sword to keep anyone who was not worthy to go to the tree of life and to eat and live forever. One angel was able to do that. We have four surrounding the throne of God. And if anyone who is not authorized, they will not get to that throne. They will not get to that scroll. And then when they attempt to, they will then be authenticated. Is he who he claims to be? Verse number two. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Here we have the beginning process of authenticating anyone who would attempt to come. And we see another thing here where John, uh, the apostle, is saying, I saw something. I saw a mighty angel. But then we hear. Do you see it? It's an amazing uh, thing that the apocalypse would always in this way say, I heard something and then I saw, or I saw something and then I heard. Many times it goes in this way. So John sees a mighty angel. Now you would think that how, how powerful is this angel? Well, we have the cherubims around the throne. And we know that the apostle John has learned about the angels in the Old Testament. One angel can destroy myriads of armies of men. And yet this is a mighty angel. This is the description. He sees a mighty angel. And this angel has the job of proclaiming something. And when an angel is given this job, I'm sure that the proclaiming is going to be effective. It's going to be loud. It will be easy to understand. And it will be a question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And this is a very good question. And so, I don't know how much time existed between verse 2 and verse 3. It, is, it, it, it appears to me that not very much time at all. And that's probably the case. But we must consider this, that this question of who is worthy, I would have to say that there was a lot of searching going on. We would have to say who truly is worthy and who in the world ever attempted to do this. Let's read verses 3 and 4, and we have to read them together because this is only one sentence. Verses 3 and 4 says this, And no one in heaven or in earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So we can see that there were people attempting, or shall we say, the angel 
may have examined and may have concluded that no one can be authenticated. No one meets the qualifications. No one meets the requirements. They didn't even have to try. They would not have been even permitted to approach. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look upon it. Now, why would anyone try to open this up? Well, I would imagine John, who was weeping by this time, knew what the requirements were, but also what the effects would be if the scroll was never opened. I want you to think about that a few minutes. This scroll had very important information, but what would happen if the scroll was never opened? What would happen if no one was found worthy? I would say this, we would all be undone. We would all have no hope whatsoever. And the reason, not only that John would weep with many tears that their souls and his soul and all of his family, all of the people he knew, would not have any hope, but also that God would receive no glory and that somehow the devil had won. How disgraceful would that be? We know that there is one thing that's even greater, of greater importance than even our salvation, and that is the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is something that we should have our hearts set upon. It is a marvelous and wonderful thing that God should glorify himself through the salvation of sinners. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that you have glorified yourself by saving worthless people like us. Thank you that you should spread your fame and your worthiness and have all creatures see how you are great and holy and just and right by even dying for the unjust. What were the requirements? Well, if the requirement was only holiness, there are myriads of angels there. There are the cherubims. There are many who have not sinned before the throne of God. So holiness is not just a requirement. It is a requirement. No one's going to get to the throne of God and take from the hand of God that which is not holy. No one can do this. That is not the only requirement. We'll see after the scroll is taken there is a reason why one can take it. For he died and bled and, and, and atoned for sinners. That is what made this particular person authenticated to come and take the scroll. That would be the difference. And so John is weeping. But the angel told him, you know, why, you know, why? Well, let's, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to compare this particular scroll before we go on to the scroll that was shown in its full content to the prophet Ezekiel. If you'll take a look, uh, now you don't have to turn there, but I'll just give you the idea of what's there. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9, Ezekiel is presented with a scroll from God. And it's described this way. Within this scroll, which was written on both sides, by the way, all types of lamentation and mourning and woe. And so I have the suspicion that this is a very similar scroll, perhaps the very same scroll. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, how did, how did Ezekiel, how did he uh, have the position of being able to read it? I believe that there is a big difference between what God was doing with Ezekiel and what is being done here. Number one, the seals had to be broken, which authenticated and it implies this. Now, you notice how I use the word imply? 
you know, I can't be sure about all this stuff, but I can tell you what the image implies, that if one is worthy to break the seal, he is also worthy to complete what is in there. The decrees of God are being executed and implemented by the one who is authenticated to open the seal. Now, it's not as though we're not able to understand what's in it, but we and no man other than the God-man, Jesus Christ, can perform the things that are written in that sealed scroll. And so, there is a worthiness that must be had by the person to open. And yet, in verse number 5, let's continue to read. And one of the elders said to me, notice, one of the elders, not an angel, not a cherubim, but one of the elders. And why do I make that point? Because it is given to us, human beings, the saved of God, to the preachers, to the prophets, to the evangelists, to the neighbors, to the mothers and fathers, to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the means of grace. And he says to them, one of the elders says, weep no more. Now this is also part of the gospel. But you see, it is part of the gospel that one person, when, once a person understands that they are condemned before God by their sin, that there is much weeping, there is much crying over the condition of a person's soul. But once that is achieved, once the convicting power of the Holy Spirit reveals to a person how the gospel and how the law condemns them, there is now the reason that they should weep no more because of the atoning work of Christ. But here... The elder is saying, weep no more because there is one who has been authenticated, one who is authorized to take that. And this is what the elder says, behold. Now this is another word that says, would you please take a look? Now, and when I was young, we used to say this phrase, just go take a look-see. And I know that's not maybe the best grammar, but sometimes some people take, they, they take a look, but they just can't see, you know? But this is like, behold and see, and take a look. He says, he says this, Weep no more. Behold the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so what does he say? He refers to Christ just as Jacob referred to his children, remember, on his deathbed. And he blessed his son Judah in Genesis chapter 49. And the blessing was this, Oh Judah, you are going to be the one there's going to be a lion that comes out of your tribe. You're going to be the one who rises up and he will have the Messiah from, from your lineage. And he will be the one who is able to achieve and to conquer all that opposes the nations in this wilderness or in this promised land. He will come. And notice how it's described, the root of David. Now, many times, if you say the son of David... You would understand that David had a son, and then he had a son, and he had a son. And by 14 generations, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. But here we have a little bit, it's turned around, where Christ is called the root of David. And there is in the Psalms, I can remember where David said, The Lord said unto my Lord. Do you see? The Lord said unto my Lord. And he was, and, and the Lord was being challenged, the Lord Jesus was being challenged by the Pharisees. And uh, this was the, the question that he asked the Pharisees. So who is David referring to? The Lord said unto my Lord. 
And of course, we can see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who begets all his children. And he is the second Adam. And David's Lord was his son. And that is, that's mixed around. But Jesus Christ is, is the root of David. David, all of us, belong in Christ. And so the description of the Lord Jesus Christ here is that he is the line of the tribe of Judah and that he is the root of David. He is the one that conquers. He is the one that overcomes. That's what makes him worthy. And so what did he conquer? What did he overcome? He overcame the grave. He overcame sin. He is the one that is able to achieve this. And notice that when the elder said, Would you behold? And he says, The line of the tribe of Judah. But what did he see? He saw a lamb. He saw the lamb of God when he said, There is the king. There is the one who sits on his throne. And the world can only see the Lord Jesus Christ as the lamb of God. These people around us that have no faith, they will say, Where is the king? You cannot see the king until you see the lamb. You see the lamb and you will say, He is my king. This is the kingdom of God right here. He is our king. He has been authenticated. He is authorized. And he will take this scroll from the hand of God. Verse number 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. You see, that's what he saw. He saw the lamb standing, as though it had been slain with the seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. I want you to notice something. Nothing, nothing or no one can come between the cherubims and the holy throne of God. Except here it says, the lamb stood between the throne and the living creatures. He is there. He has been authenticated. He is authorized to go and approach the throne of God. The throne of God. He sees him standing. He is there for us even right now interceding for us. He is beyond the cherubims. He is now facing God, face to face for us. He is in the throne of God. He saw a lamb as though he had had been slain. He had been offered for our sin, and yet there he stands, alive in the presence of God, acting as our advocate, acting as our mediator. And a lamb, how unusual for a lamb is it to have horns. When I think of a lamb, I think of one of the most harmless things I can imagine. And yet this lamb has horns. Why so? Seven horns, as a matter of fact. The completeness of God's power, the completeness and the ability of Christ to be a saving lamb is illustrated in an apocalyptic vision with a lamb with seven horns. And not only does he have the power, but he has seven eyes to see into every single heart. He has eyes to walk among his people He is here among us now. He sees into our hearts. He sees all things. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the ability to come and to give life to whom he will. And he, with the Spirit of God and the power of God, has the authority to save his people. It says in this scripture that with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This reminds me of a scripture I've read in Matthew. It says this, 
And Jesus came to them in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now does that sound familiar? That she should stand before the throne of God and take the scroll that only he can accomplish, only he can do. He has the authority because he has been authenticated. And he, and he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Here we have Christ standing before the throne and he takes the scroll. He has the authority to do and to accomplish all that has been there to now to future. He is our king ruling and reigning. And he sends us out with the seven spirits of God, with the authority and the power, the Lamb of God with his blood. And we preach the Lamb of God slain for sinners. Oh, listen, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is there and he is able. Let's go to the next verse. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now let me tell you something. This has been the only action in this entire vision. That's the only thing that's been done. That's all. If you take a look at what's being preached or what's being visioned, or shall we say seen by John. He sees his throne. He sees the cherubs. He sees the, the, you know, the people there. But the only action that's being done is the lamb stands between the cherubs and the throne. And he walks up to one who's sitting on the throne and he takes the scroll. With that, Christ takes all authority and he gives it and says, now go and preach this gospel to all the world. With this, I believe that Christ is saying, I can do all these things, and he does. He is going to implement all the decrees of God. Can you remember when someone asked Christ after he fed the 5,000, and they followed him across the river, I mean, across the lake? And they were so excited, they said, tell us, what can we do to do the mighty works of God? And you know what the Lord said to him? You believe on him who he has sent. Amen. That's the mighty work. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what the mighty works of God are. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. People do not see what is big and great and powerful today. They see with the eyes of the flesh. They want to be able to see perhaps uh, uh, you know, a river parting. Perhaps they want to see miracles. But I'll tell you, the greatest miracle is when a soul becomes alive. When a person repents from their sin. That is the mighty power of God. It is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the great act of God. The great power of God. And Christ has power to give life to whom he will. Christ is ruling with the unfettered gospel. In the Old Testament, it was types and shadows and symbols. It was still there. The Lord still opened the eyes of people. They still understood. But now it's unfettered. Now it's clear. Now the substance is here. The shadow is gone. The mystery is no longer a mystery. There is a great change at this time in which the gospel can be preached and we can save with all of our hearts. Behold the Lamb of God. Now there is a change in the action after the Lord takes the scroll 
Everything at that point is nothing but worship. Everything after that is worship. Three different songs are sung. Three different songs. Let's take a look and see what we say, what we have here. Verse number 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So what happened after he took the scroll? <coughs> Worship. Worship happened. We meet together on the Lord's Day. We sing to God. We sing songs of praise to Him. Oh, let us never be pulled away by the fancies of this world and try to entertain ourselves or try to entertain others. Our songs are to Him. Our praises are to Him. To Him and Him alone. Songs are something that is unique. Only a human heart can sing. We see the angels singing, uh, uh, but, but people on this earth, it is a unique thing. Music is a unique thing. There's nothing like a stringed instrument like a violin. A violin can make me cry. A cello. All these things, can they, they are, they're designed to reflect what is in the heart. It is like the face of a person. The face of God. That's what, that's what Moses said. He saw God face to face. Uh, between the cherubs, above the mercy seat, where the word of God is located. And they talked face to face. And the face reveals the heart. And the music here that is implied in the, in the worship of God, that the music were played by the elders with their stringed instruments. Their hearts sung to God. They sang praises to God when they understood the promises of God. When they understood how he was authenticated and authorized to save their souls and to present them before a holy God. They, they sprang to God in prayer and in, and in praise and in, and in song. They had in their bowls incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. And so when we meet together on the Lord's day, we sing to God, we pray to God, and we reverence the word, and we hear the word of God, and we, and we give ourselves to the worship of God. And here is the song that they sang. Verse number 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, and the reason here given, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is that song of worship. This is the very first of three songs that are done in this particular chapter. And it says that this is a new song. Isn't that interesting that this is a new song? Well, what was the old song? What did they used to sing? Well, before this time, they sang the same song that Moses sang. The song of Moses, remember that? Oh, the horse and his rider thrown into the sea. Oh, the defeat of Pharaoh. Oh, God went down with a mighty hand and took his people out of slavery, brought them through the wilderness, put them into the new land, and the Pharaoh was never there again. And they were never bothered by them. That was the old song. Moses Pharaoh, the horse and his rider. And what is the new song now? It is Christ, the defeat of Satan, and death and hell. That is the new song. It is the same song, but it's without the shadow. 
It is the same song in reality. Now we sing the new song that Christ has defeated death and hell. We used to sing about Pharaoh. Oh, but the dragon, he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. This is a tremendously new song. What made Christ worthy? Because his blood bought them. They are now ransomed for God. God made them priests in his kingdom. There was a shadow. There were men of a Levi family that can only be authorized to do this. But now who is authorized? The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who points others and says, Would you behold the Lamb of God? Behold the Lamb of God, the one who bleeds for his people. The one who dies for his people. And who is he? You believe in that and you'll know that he is the king of heaven, that he rules all things and he is our God and our king. Even though he presents himself to a dying world and a sinful world as a lamb. He is now ruling in the hearts of people, but make no mistake, he is ruling over everything. It may appear as though he is not in control. There was a mistake that the Pharisees made during the times of Christ. Remember what, uh, what Paul said? He said, if they had even had an inkling, if they had known that he was the Lord of glory, they never would have crucified him. And thus we have the mystery. Thus we have the shadows. And when Christ came, they did not know. They thought the kingdom of God would be something like the Romans had over them. They wanted to have a kingdom the way they would have uh, the ability to, uh, to stop the oppressors. To be rulers over the Romans. They wanted to exact their revenge upon those who abused them. They wanted to do those things that worldlings want to do. But you see, this is not the type of kingdom that Christ has. Christ has an everlasting kingdom. Christ has a kingdom that begins in holiness. And even now, the foundations of this city is being laid. Laid with the, the, the ten tribes. They brought Christ into the world with the apostles, the revealing of the great mystery of the gospel of God, and now its citizens are being gathered together. Its citizens are right here. The embassies of God, we are ambassadors for Christ. Let's continue on in verse number 11. And I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, and this is the second song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. Oh, what a song that is, isn't it? The song that is, you know, remember the first song centered around the blood of Christ and the elders and those who were saved sang it. But now we have the angels joining in. How many of them? Thousands of thousands, myriads of myriads. I can only imagine all of them. All of them praising God. He says, I looked and I behold and I heard the voice. Myriads and thousands. And they sang as though they were one voice about seven things. About the power of God, the wealth of God, the wisdom of God, the might of God, the honor of God, the glory of God, the blessings of God. These are the things that are in this song. It sings of those things that only God can do. And we should be singing this song now. That our God 
has the power to absolutely rule over all things. People are afraid of that. I can remember talking to people and they're saying, you know, I would explain the gospel and the first thing they would say is, I'm not too sure if I'm comfortable with that. You're not comfortable with God making all those decisions. What about the wealth? To him be the wealth of all things. He has unlimited resources to accomplish God's will. That was what Christ did when he came, did he not? I am here to do thy will. And he is there. He stands before the throne. When he takes that scroll, he does so to do God's will. To complete all that is decreed for him to do. There is wisdom in Christ above all others. And this is not just intelligence. This is the perfect love and reference for God to do what is good and holy and right. Oh, the beginning of our wisdom is the fear of God. And then we go into that direction of appreciating and loving the beauty of holiness and righteousness, justice. Holiness can be considered like this. Holiness can be justice. It is the legislative holiness. Righteousness is holiness. It is the doing of what is just. But it all goes back to what is right. The might of God. The infinite, unlimited omnipotence of God. We can be comfortable with that. Remember my illustration about who would you trust? A Christian with his thumb on a button that launches nuclear weapons or a crazy person with a fork in their hand? Well, I would say this. I trust God with all power. We need to trust God with all authority. Everything that he does, he can do anything. We need to trust that. We can lay down ourselves and not defend ourselves. We have no reason to defend ourselves in the hands of a mighty God. But the world, they have reason to, to fear. He should receive all honor. The praise that he deserves should be infinite in our hearts. And hopefully we will praise God. And I say hopefully, I anticipate praising God for his holiness forever. He should receive glory. He should receive the praise and the credit for all his wonderful works. No man should try to rob God of his glory. God will not share his glory with anyone. And that might, you might seem to myself, well, that seems awfully selfish. That means he must be awfully, well, he seems to be a very prideful God. No, 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 no. Only God can say this in truth. It would be our best if God exalted himself above all. It's only for our good that we should see that and understand that. God deserves the credit. He deserves the praise. And we should bless the name of God with thanksgiving because he deserves thanksgiving for his everlasting grace. So this is the song that power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing be given to our God. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that in them, saying, To him be, who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now this is the third song. It's a little bit different than the others. Every single creature is going to bow their knee to God. If they got a knee, it's going to be bowed. Everything. In heaven, in earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in them, all of this creation even the trees and rocks, everything. This song is be sung, and notice that it says that blessings should be given, honor should be given, glory should be given, 
and might acknowledged. A little bit different than the other songs. It doesn't mention the holiness of God, but it does mention that every knee shall be bowed. There is a way of looking at this world, and the world acknowledges God. The very details of the creation, the very, the very testimony that this cannot be just by accident. Oh my goodness, by accident. God is the God of creation and He is the God of order. Amen. He brings all these things out of chaos. And so I want to I want to end this with this on the last verse. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What do these living creatures say? They witness all of creation, every creature, giving homage to God, praising and blessing His name, honoring His name. And what do they say? Amen. They agree. They agree. They say, we, we see it. So be it. And they all agree with all of creation. Now I'm going to give you the practical applications and they're very easy. There's two things that are done in this chapter. The lamb takes the scroll. The other thing, that results in all worship of every creature before the lamb of God. We must see that Christ is on his throne. When he took that scroll, he is now in his throne. Remember what he said to the Laodiceans? If you overcome, I will have you sit with me in my Father's throne. And this is Christ taking his seat because he has said, I have all in my hands. If we are in the hands of God, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Even Paul said concerning the creation of the world, it all groans under the weight of sin. But that groaning is going to give way to praising because all of this is going to change. It's going to be folded up and put away. It's going to be burned up and consumed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the heavens and the earth will praise God. Even now they groan under this. Just like we groan wearing these tabernacles that will one day be changed into a permanent body like Christ, suitable to praise God forever. So we see, worthy is the Lamb who sits on the throne. Worthy is the Lamb. He is the great God that we cannot say, who is this Christ that I should obey His voice? He is the one who is the King the real king. He is actively ruling this world by the virtue of his worthiness. He is on his throne. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come now acknowledging that you are the Almighty and Christ. You are the one who have done all things to save our souls. You've given your own blood and you are the lamb before and we follow you, Lord. Wherever you go, we will follow you by your grace and by your, by your power. We, do, we make this claim. We cannot do it in our strength. We are unable to do it. Even our faith and our belief is unable. <clears throat> but Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given life to all to whom it has pleased you to do so. And we want to thank you for the promise that whoever comes, you will in no wise cast out. Thank you for this great promise. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for being our king. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen.